Digital initiatives are on the rise as retailers embrace the new normal. Meanwhile, ThreadUp announced its biggest partnership to date. And this just in, brands around the world are taking a stand against racial injustice. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, June 8th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we're joined by guests Sucharita Kodali and Shannon Ryan. Sucharita is a retail analyst at Forrester Research, where she is an expert on e-commerce, omni-channel retail, consumer behavior, and trends in the online shopping space. Shannon is the Executive Vice President of North America for Valtech, where he helps leadership teams map, understand, and execute digital strategy, mostly in the world of retail, CPG, and B2B. Sucharita, Shannon, thank you for joining again today. Thanks for having me, Julia. Absolutely, Julia. Thank you. So our first topic today, it's a bit heavy, but uh, we thought we definitely need to cover it here at at Rethink Retail, and it's how are retailers approaching anti-racism. From D.C. to Seattle, protests over the brutal killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis last month have rocked the United States, Canada, and parts of Europe as demonstrators take to the streets to demand justice for George and the many other Black individuals who have lost their lives to excessive force. In response, scores of brands have published statements and social media posts in support of the protesters as they call for the end of racism, bigotry, and violent policing. Nike shared a video that captured a lot of attention online, um, and it opened with, quote, for once, don't do it. Don't pretend there's not a problem in America. And surprisingly, on Twitter, Adidas, their competitor, retweeted the message, adding, together is how we move forward. Together is how we make change. Ben & Jerry's received a lot of press with their candid retort, stating that Floyd's death was a predictable consequence of a racist and prejudiced system. And Target CEO made headlines when he said the company plans to face the pain with purpose. Sutrita, I'd like to turn this over to you first and ask, what do you think about the statements these brands are making in response to the protests? Do they seem genuine? Well, I think that they come from places of concern, but the challenge and the concern that I have is that they are just perceived to be piling on to be opportunistic because they often have not been met with a history of action. They seem to be coming out of the blue. And we also saw similar messaging that came at the beginning of the pandemic that got a lot of negative backlash where consumers just didn't feel like brands were being sincere. So I think that that hasn't helped in these circumstances. And the sense of authenticity and truly putting action behind words is a valid concern that shoppers and consumers and fans even have when they see companies making these statements that don't necessarily have action behind them. Absolutely. And I think there is a lot of disingenuous statements because of how brands were responding in the past. Shannon, what's your take? Yeah, um, I'm always hesitant to try and generalize such a complex issue, but I absolutely would support the comments by Sujarita in terms of I think when you have a moment of unparalleled crisis like the COVID side or like we're dealing with here in Black Lives Matter and and the sort of systemic racism that has been just an impossible thing to completely overcome for all countries in a way that 
allows that conversation to progress. It feels a lot like the world has finally arrived at a point where the words aren't going to be enough. And I think that to answer your point, just quickly on the idea of brands, I think what happens at times of crisis is the true authenticity of that brand is under a microscope. And I think the the brands that you mentioned, such as Nike and Adidas and Ben and Jerry's, who had a starting point and a starting place of credibility are able to continue to build on that credibility. I would contrast that by, you know, I saw a similar sort of statement of support from the NFL. And quite honestly, it just doesn't ring true given the history of that organization and the side that they took leading Mm -hmm. up to these events. But specifically in the conversations I've been having with executive teams of my clients recently, really it's come down to sort of three things that I think they all need to look at. I think the first one is education. They need to use this as an opportunity to educate themselves, educate their teams, educate their customers. That's the onus of you will of a brand. And then the other two are sort of authenticity and action. You need to be authentic in the messaging that you're putting out there. You need to be really seen as being credible. And then at the end of the day, words aren't enough. Quote, unquote, thoughts and prayers. We've been there before, folks. We need to move this conversation to action. I think if we do that, then we're along a path that is the right one, as opposed to, I think, a loop that unfortunately we've been on up until this point. Mm-hmm. And you said, Shannon, words aren't enough. We've we've seen that before. And I was speaking with someone a few days ago, and she said, you know, a month ago, retail stores were closed, and now they're boarded up. It's almost like a coffin. What do you guys think about that statement? Do you think this current movement in combination with COVID will make it even clearer who the winners and losers are? Oh, no question about that. I mean, this is two terrible things happening at the same time. And if it was hard enough for the companies that were struggling to make it through the pandemic, then if you had storefronts in some of these urban areas that have been badly affected by the protests, then you're just extending the timeline for recovery even further. And only those that have alternative means of generating revenue, either because they're more diversified or they may have a strong digital presence or they may have a strong online fan base or whatever the kind of mitigating factor may be, there will absolutely be those companies that will be able to weather that storm and this prolonging of getting back to normalcy. And those that can't, they will unfortunately not have the financial cushion to make it much farther. I think it's interesting to think about, you know, how many executive teams at the end of 2019, when they were crafting their strategy for 2020, had the word security, security and safety of our customers in their playbook. And I would argue that that word is probably the number one word that all of the leadership teams in the world of retail out there are thinking, how do we ensure, demonstrate the appearance of safety and security for our consumers in our stores. And it was not on 
anyone's radar six months ago and now is on everyone's radar this minute. Mm-hmm. Good points on on those words about safety. And Sutra Day, to your point, some retailers won't have the financial cushion, as you said, to make it much further. And one more question I have on this, because some retailers really might not have the financial liquidity to donate in the form of cash right now to various organizations. But I think many would get backlash if they didn't do actionable things like donating. Are there other ways retailers can respond if it's not purely in the form of donations? Oh, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that is pretty well known about the retail industry is that it employs hundreds of thousands of people who are often relatively low-wage workers who are disproportionately represented by minorities. And what I think are absolutely options are that what retailers have to offer in the way of benefits to their own employees, whether it is educational tuition reimbursements or retraining programs to help them either grow within a company or even grow into other careers after they may choose to leave an existing company. There are opportunities to offer childcare support to hourly workers. There are opportunities to provide more financial, just even education to, you know, kind of different customer segments and different employee segments. I think that there are a lot of things that retailers can be looking certainly within their communities and supporting nonprofits within their communities, but also even just supporting their own employees with the challenges that employees may have every day and even just showing up to work, you know, healthcare. I mean, one of the challenges has for a number of hourly worker, for particularly in the hourly worker world is, are still challenges associated with getting consistent healthcare benefits. And the more that retailers can support that, that would be a good thing. But at the same time, we know that retailers have actually lobbied against was like universal health care or better health care coverage. And whether we admit it or not, those are absolutely the challenges that minorities, minorities and minority the minority community faces, and that is as much of a challenge with systemic racism as, as some of the issues that we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. Great points on the educational program supporting their own employees and re-examining what they can do in terms of healthcare. Before we dive into our next segment, let's hear some good news. Beauty retailer Glossier is donating $500,000 to six organizations, along with pledging $500,000 worth of grants to Black-owned beauty businesses. Athletic apparel retailer Lululemon is donating $100,000 to the Minnesota Freedom Fund. Levi Strauss Foundation announced it's donating $100,000 to its longstanding partner, ACLU Nationwide, and another $100,000 to Live Free USA, an organization on the front lines of social justice issues. 
The next topic shines light on a new retail partnership. So last month, e-commerce consignment retailer ThreadUp made headlines when it announced a new strategic partnership with the world's biggest retailer, Walmart. Budget and environmentally conscious customers can now shop walmart.com slash thread up to find thousands of pre-loved women's and children's clothing, footwear, and accessories. Customers have the added benefit of Walmart's free shipping threshold on orders of $35 or more and free returns to Walmart stores or thread up. Exclusive perks that have not been available to thread up customers before. This was according to a statement released by Walmart. And the head of fashion for Walmart US, Denise Incandela, said the partnership is the company's latest move to establish Walmart.com as a destination for fashion. Walmart is the latest retailer to partner with the consignment company. Last year, ThreadUp announced partnerships with JCPenney, Macy's, and Nordstrom, and Gap hopped the man wagon this February. Shannon, what do you think about ThreadUp's new partnership with Walmart? Will they really become the destination for fashion? Well, I think that's going to depend on your definition of fashion. Yeah, that's that's true. It truly does. (laughs) I mean, I think that it's foolish to think that the word fashion is a monolithic sort of understanding of that world. But there's no doubt that we all understand the reasons why both organizations decided to strike that partnership. Walmart, again, is looking for opportunities to bring people to a physical store, to allow them to experience what it's like once they're in that store for the opportunities for resales and add-on shopping. And from ThreadUp standpoint, obviously, it gives them a footprint and access to a market that, quite honestly, is impressive. So I think we understand the drivers behind something like this. Whether or not it becomes the new shining light of fashion, uh, I think that kind of remains to be seen. Mm -hmm, Good points. And Sutrita, does this surprise you at all, this partnership? No, Walmart had been over the last few years, it's embarked on a number of partnerships. There was the Lord and Taylor initiative. Then there were a lot of acquisitions of companies ranging from ModCloth to, I think, Moosejaw and others, where it just was able to extend its brand presence and the variety of merchandise that was available on walmart.com. So the idea of extending into with yet another digitally native brand is not surprising. I do question how much it'll actually generate from the way of volume. And I do wonder if it makes sense that it is on the dot-com site versus in physical stores, because some of the thread up relationships, like with Macy's, for instance, were thread up showing up in physical stores, whereas this is an online partnership. And my concern with consignment is that I've always had questions around the economic viability and whether or not it really delivers the promise of being circular and green and all of that when you are shipping products in a package across the country versus being able to take advantage of local merchandise and being able to have it be a circular experience that has a much smaller kind of carbon footprint. That's really my question is, Ultimately, how much money is this going to generate for either side? Is this really, truly a green initiative? And is this something that is going to extend Walmart's 
presence in fashion. I think that what they're potentially hoping for, a lot of the thread up merchandise is merchandise where people may have purchased it a few years ago or in the past, and they still have the tags on, they just never got around to using it. And there is an opportunity to get exposure to brands that you wouldn't get exposure to otherwise at at Walmart. So I think that's really the idea. I know that some of these consignment sites, some of their biggest brands are brands like Vera Bradley or Nike or, you know, brands that are for some consumers aspirational brands. And this is a way to get those brands on your site. So we'll see. I mean, a lot of it still depends on how much of the merchandise they can actually get their hands on. Do we have an idea as to whether or not TreadUp has, like, do they turn over their entire inventory in this case, or is it sectioned off in a curated sort of way? Do we know? That's a good question. I don't know that I had followed all of those details. I'd be surprised if it's everything. My Mm -hmm. my hunch is that it's probably a subset, but that's actually a good question to look into. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they released that information from what I saw. But I think perhaps with the liquidation that might occur due to COVID and with, you know, past seasons where that it might be a really good move for ThreadUp and Walmart. The other thing I wanted to ask while we're on the topic of Walmart, just because this was an interesting thing I saw people debating on social recently, was the Jet.com acquisition. It was $3.3 billion for Walmart many years ago, and now they're laying that to rest. And people are saying, well, it was still a well-spent $3 billion because it gave Walmart access to an incredibly talented team that ultimately helped them transform their digital initiatives. Do you guys agree with that? I agree with it. You know, when you look at the market cap of Walmart, it's certainly grown substantially. And a large part of the reason for that has been the strides that it's made with its dot-com and digital efforts, not just its own e-commerce site, but any omni-channel efforts as well. The fact that inventory is now much more visible online so that consumers shopping experience, whether they're using a mobile device in a physical store, outside of a physical store, whether a store associate is being asked for help and they need to call on the data that's in on their handheld mobile. All of that is so much better than it was a few years ago. And I think a lot of that is due to the investments that have been made in digital. Whether or not you can draw a straight line to, oh, this was Jet IP, I don't think that that's even really relevant. I think that it's just changed the culture of Walmart. They acquired a lot of talent that came with it. And they still have Mark Laurie and a lot of the Jet team that continues to bolster the digital presence that is walmart.com. And whether or not the industry knows it, we need Walmart as a player because Amazon is the single biggest player in e-commerce. And Amazon has not been a great friend of the rest of the retail industry. Mm -hmm. And the more that Walmart is able to offset the growth of Amazon or give customers an alternative in their shopping journey, the better it is for consumers, the better it is for the retail landscape. The only thing that I would add is if you go back to an interview that the CEO of Walmart gave in 2016 when they made the acquisition in terms of why they were doing it. For all of the reasons that Sujarita just outlined from executive talent through to sort of this accelerization of the digital sales channel, all of those things are true. And all of those things were really the drivers back then that are the outcomes for today. 
there's no doubt that I think if you're an executive at Walmart, you would have liked to have seen a way where no one likes to sort of have the associated negativity that a $3 billion purchase sort of has fizzled. But I think you need to make sure to look at it through the proper lens before you actually use those words of fizzled or, or unsuccessful or whatever. Because quite honestly, to the credit of the leadership team of Walmart, they knew exactly why they were doing that investment at the very beginning. And you can't argue with the results that have happened since then because of that investment. Mm-hmm. Good points. You can't argue with the results because they definitely have surprised a lot of people in recent years um, with how much they were able to innovate and keep up with Amazon's growth. And like Sutrita, you said it's better for consumers and for retailers if Walmart can offset some of Amazon's growth. And just to point out about coming back to the ThreadUp partnership, you know, the apparel resale market has grown 21 times faster than new clothing sales over the past three years according to their annual resale report at ThreadUp. And 70% of consumers have now bought or are willing to buy secondhand. And I personally have used ThreadUp and I, I love it. So I'm really excited personally for this partnership, but I think there will be some challenges with COVID. I would like to now move on to our last topic of the day, which is around digital initiatives, which I know you guys are both experts in. So while the retail industry at large has been thrown for a major loop since the onset of the pandemic, many brands are thinking big about how to make the most of dire straits. So some examples, Best Buy rolled out curbside pickup in just three days. Sam's Club rolled out its concierge app in six days. In China, Alibaba-owned department store In Time turned to live streaming and online sales during their coronavirus lockdown. And during a recent episode of the Retail Transformation Show, retail strategist and our friend Carl Boutet told host Oliver Banks that in the past century, we've witnessed a great depression, a great recession, and now we're faced with the greatest of accelerations. Shannon, do you agree with Carl that retail is a in a period of great acceleration? Oh, how can you throw me the curveball question? <laughs> off the start? I think you can say yes to that almost unequivocally. I just don't know the direction that it's necessarily accelerating towards. I mean, I think that and Sujarita and I have had numerous interactions in the past years over this idea of the COVID situation has essentially exposed the underbelly of the pre-existing conditions that exist in the inside the world of retail for many years. And I think what it has done has certainly accelerated the gap between those organizations that have not only the infrastructure, but also the executive leadership teams in place to be able to understand to how to capitalize in situations of uncertainty. And you see those enlightened organizations being able to either execute quickly, as you said in your intro, or be able to just double down on their strategy to be able to continue to add distance between their competitors. And I think that there is no doubt that if you think about that word acceleration as a gap between leaders and laggards, 
then most assuredly we are seeing a, a period of acceleration. Mm-hmm. And you said, Shannon, you're not sure exactly what direction that acceleration is going in, but you agree there is an acceleration in terms of, it sounds... To, yeah. to Sujarita's earlier point about those organizations that have the means and ways and cash flow to be able to survive the uncertainty and ups and downs, I think you will see them accelerate. For those who don't, I also think you're going to see an acceleration of the demise of many of those retailers who have not been able to weather the storm that historically in a world where there was no COVID, they might've been able to hang on for a year or two, but given the intensification of what's happened, you're seeing the acceleration the wrong way towards more bankruptcies and closures. Mm-hmm. Sucharita, what is your take in terms of the great acceleration? Well, Julia, I think it's a fascinating question because just a few years ago, we were talking about an apocalypse, which is the opposite <laughs> Good of point. acceleration. And I think that the root of the acceleration question is coming from changes in technology, the constant bombardment that retailers have of new technology solutions or press releases from Facebook and Google and Amazon about new things that they have to keep up with. And uh, the fact that things are changing, consumers are changing, or one day your store is open, the next day, you know, a pandemic closes your entire chain and you have to be nimble and you can't simply operate in the way that you were operating before. So in that regard, things are accelerating toward nimbleness. They're accelerating toward being adaptable. But I think that what has happened in the midst of this, and this is part of the reason that we continue to see shakeouts and you continue to see stores going into bankruptcy, is that a lot of these brands are not thinking from a customer-centric point, and they're not thinking about how they can continue to be relevant in a world where their sector may be declining or permanently shrinking. And I was just talking about an iconic denim brand recently. They were asking questions around things like their e-commerce site. And I think that it's important for them to ask questions about how they can be a better e-commerce site. But if they hadn't come to grips with the fact that denim at this moment in time is a declining category and they have leaned into stores when stores are shrinking, they have bigger problems. And what they do have, which is a huge asset in their favor, is that they are a beloved, iconic, global brand. And they have permission because of the iconic nature and the decades of equity that they have built with their customers and with, you know, kind of shoppers around the world to stretch even not just beyond denim, but beyond apparel and shopping if they choose. I mean, they could be a media company. They could be so much more than where they are. I mean, if Nokia had just stayed with rubber boots, nobody would have bought their (laughs) phones 20 years ago. So I think that that's, that's the piece that is incredibly important is you can't the entire industry needs to come to grips with what's the next act. When I look at the large technology companies, whether it's Facebook or Google or Apple or Amazon, and you look at where their revenues were coming from in 2000, they've all completely changed their revenue streams in just 20 years. Whereas if I were to go back to the year 2000 and look at how retailers' revenue streams have changed, they've shrunk, 
but they have not changed their revenue mix. They haven't changed their revenue base. And therein lies the challenge and therein lies the difference is that you can't still, if Amazon had just stayed in the business of selling books, where would it be today? You know, and I mean, that's sort of what retailers are complaining about is that, you know, I'm still doing things the same way I did 20 years ago. And I'm mad that the game has changed. Mm -hmm. Really powerful examples you brought. And I love how you said if Nokia would have stuck with rubber boots, no one would have bought their phones and Google and some other huge players we know and love today have completely different revenue streams, you said, than 20 years ago. So, Well, I'm, I'm also happy to hear, Sujarita, that Wrangler has such a visionary leadership team <laughs> to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you um, guys Wrangler, but <laughs> <laughs> did you see Levi's new campaign where they said, "Come and find your new size after the quarantine 15"? Your new size. <laughs> your new <laughs> size. Why? Because people have just been uh, sitting at home eating. Packed on uh -huh. the COVID 19. Yes, like the freshman 15. Um, I, I think you make a really valid point about being able to pivot and understand the changing nature of not only your market, but I think your customer. And I think where I've had some really interesting discussions lately with different brands is really helping them understand and think through almost truly what business they're in, in many ways, in terms of that shopping experience, whether or not they are serving a need of a customer or whether or not they're trying to fulfill an aspiration of the customer. And we, we, we've had a conversation before about just the different sort of role of the physical store versus if you're selling something that people know, then it's a fulfillment type issue and it should be pretty straightforward. You can buy online, pick up on all that stuff. But if you're selling something that is more of a wanderer type solution of something that is experiential, I think stores and retailers are still really, really struggling to figure out their value proposition in this new world. And I think the enlightened ones are out there trying to run a colossal series of experiments to see what fits. And quite honestly, unless that is in the DNA of your leadership team, that is a really hard proposition to be able to manage and be successful at. But it is probably the only element of the playbook right now that I think we all can agree works, which is you need to be confident enough to experiment to be able to sort of navigate your way in the new world because both your market and your customers are going through a rapid period of evolution. It's certainly rapid. And I like how you pointed out the focus on the customer. It's really important. And to ask you guys one last question, I'm just going to open the floor, whoever wants to jump in. But what, what are some digital initiatives or innovations that you're expecting will change the game most for retail moving forward? Shannon, I'm going to let you have that. <laughs> I, I knew you would do that to me. <laughs> I think... There's almost a game that we're playing here at Valtech, which is you take all the sort of change and innovation that's taking place, you line up on two sides of a scorecard. One is it's a temporary situation that will probably last, you know, three months, six months, maybe even 12. But then we go back to pre-existing behavior. And then there's the permanent change. And I think it's going to be a matter of degrees. I think things like curbside pickup and things like, I don't see that going away. I actually see the convenience of that specifically in certain verticals where it makes sense will continue. 
I think it's a little early, <laughs> honestly, to say what's going to stick. I mean, I read a great line of, you know, the week that we decided to start to open stores, we fled back. It's like collectively we all failed the marshmallow experiment, if you're familiar with that one, where we, we just couldn't resist. And we go back to these sort of pre-existing behaviors. And while I think the customer has been quick to change, I'm not so sure I understand how lasting that change is going to be. So for example, if you are Starbucks and Starbucks is known as the third space, right? Work, home, and then this sort of other meeting place to get together for social. Are people going to want to spend three hours in a tiny Starbucks sitting two feet apart from each other, having a coffee? Or does Starbucks really need to think about completely reconfiguring their store layout such that it's more focused on a transient customer? And if they are going to change that store footprint, that's a major capital investment that you you want to be pretty darn sure that that's lasting behavior. I don't know. It's a good question, Julia. And Sujarita will fill it in with a much more sort of full response. <laughs> and I, Shannon, I'm completely in agreement about some of these changes in the, that the pandemic is driving, whether it's curbside or just the reconfiguration of physical spaces. I think that from a technology standpoint, there are certain terms that seem to elicit Pavlovian responses in retail, like every Mm -hmm. time the word voice or the expression AI is used, it just gets so many people excited. But my hunch is, is that the value is still very much... TBD. And, you know, that's one of the biggest things that the pandemic has unveiled is that AI has such clear limitations when you don't have the data and the history to suggest how something is actually going to work out. But I think that there continue to be, and where technology is important, is in solving the big challenges we still have in retail. We have not solved the problem of inventory visibility in stores. Companies have gotten better at it and they are improving. And some companies I would argue are pretty darn good. You know, I would say the do-it-yourself retailers are pretty darn good. Walmart and Target, pretty good. Um, You know, but there's still room for improvement and the stores are not always set to planogram. And there's an opportunity to make that even better than where it is today. And of course, for everybody else to catch up. There are factors related to transparency, like where things may be in the supply chain or where things may be in the manufacturing process. And we don't have a ton of visibility into that type of information. There's a lot of waste in retail, especially in the manufacturing process. And often, even once inventory comes to the store, we have a significant percent of products that are returned that end up in landfills, as an example. So there are a lot of opportunities that we have that are problems that hopefully technology will fix. I think that one of the biggest challenges, because I talk to hundreds of technology service providers every year, is that solutions are often driven by what technology is able to do. It's not driven by what are the needs and let's build a solution that solves those needs. So that hopefully will change. It gradually does change. And, you know, there are some companies that are doing some really, really interesting 
things, whether it's in, you know, the return space or the inventory visibility space. And I hope that they continue to grow and there are more solutions like that that become more adapted by retailers in or adopted by retailers in the months and years to come. I just want to pick up quickly, Sudrita, on one comment you made, which I think is really enlightening to hear, which is, you know, that far too often decisions around technology are driven by the capabilities of the product as opposed to the needs of the customer. I would also suggest that as someone who does a lot of implementation of that software, it's it's still shockingly far too widespread to be in engagements where the customer says, we've picked the technology, now we need to figure out what to do with it. And where we're going to let the technology essentially drive our discussions around the strategy even. And there was that great expression back in the world when we went to, we were all talking about Web 2.0. And somebody said that in order to get to Web 2.0, we're going to need Management 2.0. And I think that's still apparent today is that a lot of the critical abilities to be able to drive strategy come down to the people who are driving that strategy. And I think there's still a, a significant amount of learning that needs to be done on how to effectively build, run, operate, scale, increasingly digital businesses. And rightly so. It's still in the corpus of business. It's a, it's a pretty new thing still. Well, from social issues to new partnerships in retail and digital initiatives that we're keeping an eye on right now, I think you guys did a great job of bringing your expertise to the table. And again, I really thank you both, Shan and Ryan, to Trita Kodali for joining today. My pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Julia. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.